Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Amazing Grace, one of the most iconic Christian and especially black Christian songs in history. But many of us don't know that Amazing Grace was written by a former slave trader and his name was John Newton. Before I delve into that story about John Newton and Amazing Grace, today's topic is Christianity and slavery in the Caribbean and the complex dynamics behind it all. And I like to say that there's no way that I could ever cover everything that we need to cover in one episode, but I will do my best to give you guys some hard, solid facts about our relationship with Christianity in this episode. So back to John Newton. Imagine this, folks. John Newton is a young guy, 1700s in England. He grew up around ships, And then he decides to become a seaman. And what happens is he's captured and forced into the Royal Navy as a a button. He's about 18 years old at this time. And where in which he really, really despised being part of the Navy. He wanted to have his own autonomy, his own freedom as a young 18 year old. And the Navy life wasn't the kind of life he wanted. So what happened was, is that he made an attempt to desert the Navy. It's obviously desertion is a big problem so what happened was is when this was found out his attempt to desert the navy he was punished in front of 350 of his shipmates where he was stripped and tied up and he was whipped 96 times within that john newton fell into a deep depression where he wanted to kill the captain and commit suicide and all kinds of um, you know very dark thoughts as a young man who just wanted to travel the seas Being part of the Navy and traveling on the seas, you'll be interacting with lots of slave ships and slave traders. There was an interaction with a ship called the Pegasus, who were traders in West Africa, and he didn't get along with them. And he was captured and put into enslavement himself. And he was enslaved by this trader who was married to a princess. So he was enslaved by a princess called Princess Pei or P-E-Y-E, of the Sherbro people who make up 1.9% of the population of Sierra Leone. So he was enslaved there and in in his writings, um, in his diaries, he stated how 
awful and brutal it was for him as an enslaved that he said he was a servant of slaves so he was even beneath the enslaved who were there in Africa anyways long story short Mr. John Newton is rescued by an English sea captain and taken back to England. And on the way back up to England, a huge storm hits the seas and he's off the coast of Ireland and he thinks he's going to die. Right? It's like waves are crashing. It's like the ship is rocking. You know what I'm saying? It's like dark. And, you know, he's like, yo, I'm going to die. Right? So he starts, what, what do you do? You start praying, right? And he wasn't a Christian or he wasn't a religious man before. So he started praying, God, please don't make me die. Don't make me die. I'll do anything, making all these kind of deals and stuff like that. And he makes it safe. And he said that was the beginning of his relationship with Christianity. And you'd think that, especially when you look at the lyrics of Amazing Grace, like that saved a rich like me and all that kind of thing like that, that would kind of lead uh, Mr. John Newton into, you know, a better life, way of living. And he did stop drinking and gambling and stuff like that. But that didn't stop him from becoming a slave trader himself and John Newton made at least three journeys to the Caribbean as a slave ship captain and you know he was he witnessed and was part of a lot of the brutalities that happened on the slave ships and I believe that he brought a ship to Barbados and possibly Antigua I will double check my notes and I'll leave that in the show notes in the bottom but he definitely did transport enslaved people to the Caribbean And of course, they had to do things like one of the tactics that he did describe using was pointing cannons um, to the enslaved as a fear tactic. One of the other punishments that he had noted was the nailing of thumbs to the wooden boards on the slave ships and especially to young boys who would be, you know, too rowdy on the slave ships. Um, And even within that, John Newton also got hit by another storm once again on the Atlantic. And this is when his pathway to Christianity intensified. And, you know, but that's still, he still continued to um, be a trader and to profit off of the slave trade. And he only stopped um, seafaring because he suffered from a huge stroke. And after suffering the stroke, he come back to England and then he became this vicar and then started to become this big abolitionist. So Newton died on the 21st of December, 1807. And this was the year that the slave trade became illegal in Britain. And it was said that he was rejoicing on his deathbed that the horrible trade had come to an end. But, you know, I just thought it was extremely, extremely interesting that, you know, the person who's made this whole entire song, which is like, you know, the epitome of black christian religion amazing grace was written by a man who did so many atrocities um to enslaved africans i thought that was extremely interesting and i wanted to use amazing grace as the opener to our discussion about the complexities about religion and slavery in the caribbean some facts for example is when you look at jamaica jamaica has more churches per square kilometer in the whole world and, you know, in many um, parts, like, for example, in Grenada, Grenada, I believe, is about 96% Christian. And, you know, when you look across the Caribbean, we're actually quite religious. And our relationship with Christianity is extremely strong. And our fear of Obia and our African religions is very rife. And we are very underinformed about 
what exactly obia is we just told that it's bad voodoo is bad santeria is bad and we know very but we know very little about them and this complex relationship that we have with religion i'd like to touch on today so one of the things i wanted to speak about is the very very interesting fact that african slavery was introduced to dominica by a black man and then with this i'm going to have to go back a little bit so let's rewind a little bit when we're looking at the whole dynamics of all the europeans are scrambling to take hold of the caribbean and have ownership of the different islands and the two people who were fighting quite a lot were the french and the british right when the islands were being divided up or when the islands were being fought over between the french and the british there were certain treaties that were signed, which is something that I'm going to touch on in a subsequent podcast. But certain treaties were signed to have two neutral islands. And these were the islands that were seen as uninhabitable or not fit for plantation purposes to grow sugar, which were Dominica and St. Vincent. And these two islands were left to be for the Kalinago and the Arawak people. So these two islands were the last to be colonized. So with that, we have Martinique, which is very close to Dominica. Martinique is filled with plantations and many of the plantations are owned by the church. Actually, the Catholic church was at one point the second largest slave owner of Martinique and Guadeloupe. So they had a huge, huge, huge investment. The church had a lot, used to make a lot of money. And you'd also find when I looked at um, our homeboy, Pere Labat, and his documentation of his time in Martinique, and he'd speak about nuns, and the nuns would have their enslaved. So it's not just these white men, whatever, whatever, having these plantations, but it was also white women, and some of them were nuns. So I thought that was very interesting. So within this podcast, I'm going to be reading quite a few excerpts um, from different books and essays that I found very interesting because uh, there's been a lot, a lot of extensive research that has been done on the history of religion and slavery within the Caribbean. So talking about Dominica in particular, because Dominica has a really, really interesting history. And I'm going to be reading an excerpt from an essay that is called The Jesuit Plantation and Church in the Caribbean Frontier in Grand Bay, Dominica, which is written by Steve Lenick, who is a professor. And this is some of the descriptions that he's talking about, about the Jesuits, which are the Catholics in Dominica. So part of the essay goes like this. Beginning in 1748, Jesuits from Martinique built a plantation and church on property acquired at Grand Bay, on the south coast of Dominica. Here, the Jesuits built a plantation which used enslaved African labor to generate income and repay debts. Let's keep in mind that the church made a lot of investment into the Caribbean, like building windmills, and all of these plantation houses was very expensive. So they had a lot of debts. When you look at plantation ownership and stuff like that, many of the banks made a lot of money off of this because people took mortgages. So they took mortgages out on the enslaved, they took mortgages out on the land that was purchased to build a windmill and all these things. So a lot of these people had a lot of debts, pairing with a lot of people making mad money. Okay? So the essay continues like this. To generate income and to repay debts, and a church to serve their slaves and people from the surrounding region. 
while the Jesuits were in Dominica, the island was a frontier, not officially a colony of a European state because it was a neutral island. But harboring a Carib population, as well as a people of Amerindian, African, European, and mixed ancestry. The thing about these neutral islands is that they used to be a place for escapees. So people who escaped bondage. Or, you know, what's interesting, they said there was quite a few white people who bounced and went to Dominica to live in the bush too. I thought that quite interesting. Within the early 18th centuries, Dominica began to be settled by families of French settlers who owned African slaves, as well as free Africans and colored settlers. It was in this context that Jesuits from Martinique acquired property at Grand Bay, where from 1748 to 1763, they owned a plantation and operated a parish church. So alongside having their plantations, they made sure they built a church, okay? Because it just makes everything better, right? Gotta pray whilst <laughs> you're making, I don't know, sugar. There were excavations on the site in 2007 and 2008 and located remains of three buildings which were part of the Jesuit property, including the Catholic Church. Okay, so as they're building their plantations, alongside that they're building a church. I mean, when you look at things like the castles in Ghana, what is noted is that lots of them had a chapel. So you go and do your morning prayers and then you go and do your thing, right? So Grand Bay was attracted to the Jesuits because of its proximity to Martinique, which is obviously a huge Catholic stronghold. Uh, the Catholic population and the invitation of Genot Roll. So Genot Roll or Genot. So it is J-E-A-N-N-O-T. Genot, I guess. Genot Roll, who was a Catholic settler who had placed a stone cross on the beach in Grand Bay in 1692. So Genot Roll is the black man who founded the enslavement of Africans or the plantation system in Dominica. Because Dominica is the only colony in the Western Hemisphere to have slavery, African chattel slavery, be founded by a black man. So very briefly, Jeanette was a, a free black man um, from Martinique and he decided to start to make friends with the Kalinago chief in Dominica. He said, yo, I just want to come here and, you know, just do some logging because, of course, Dominica is so lush and there's, you know, so much uh, forest. So therefore, you can do some good logging there, right? So he's like, yo, can I come and do some one-two logging here a little bit? And Kalinago chief was like, yo, you can come small small all right small small so Geno was like cool then he started to make more money make more money so he's like yo i need to do some more stuff so he's like yo can i buy like a few acres off of you so he bought about 14 or 15 acres from the kalinago chief and the kalinago chief was like cool you can come but do not i have two conditions do not bring your crucifix do not mount any crucifix on my island all right secondly do not bring any oxen any horned cattle onto the island all right for whatever reason i'm not too sure about the latter part but that was the conditions and what he did was uh the opposite he first he came he built his house he brought his wife he brought his enslaved and the first thing he did was set up a cross so the Kalinago people were like burn you and your cross so they burnt it down and then he built another one 
and then they burnt it down and then they burned down his house right and he kept building the cross and building the cross and building the cross because he was a very religious man and man believed in his Catholicism so he kept doing that and also what he did decided to do what he brought horned cattle because he needed the oxen to haul the wood the more and more wood that he was bringing he was doing through his deforestation in Dominica so he completely disrespected the Kalinago people what is actually quite cool is a description that Genot gives about his interaction with the chief. And the chief is called Uraragan. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it properly. I feel like I'm disrespecting it, but it's O-U-R-A-R-A-G-A-N. O, so it's Uraragan. Chief Uraragan. I feel like I'm saying it wrong. I'm just going to say the chief. Kalinago people out there. I love y'all, I don't want to disrespect. So, what he was doing with the chief is that they had signed, they had made an agreement on a piece of paper, and he says, upon which they painted bows and arrows using ruku dye, a red dye, and guinepar fruit, which is a black dye. I thought that was quite cool. I wish that piece of paper had survived. So what happened with Genoa, he says that he guided his enterprise by, quote, the Holy Spirit. And in defiance of the Kalinago's wishes, he erected a stout wooden cross. But this was burned down alongside his grand kabe with all his belongings and remains which were tossed into the sea. And this is where he says, the Caribs saw my cross as a victory of the Christian faith and made war on my settlement. And to save myself, I had to hide in the woods with my family and slaves. And the Kalinago people continued to uh, attack every time he put up a cross, and he kept doing it. He also made one from the trunk of a zepine tree covered with large thorns and still. And he says, every time I made a new cross and I made them stronger and stronger. He's, he's boasting about it. You know, he's so devout into his Catholicism whilst being a slave owner and whilst disrespecting um, the wishes of the Kalinagos. What Monsieur Geno decides to do is make his enslaved cab a seven-foot cross made out of stone, and he erects it. And of course, there's nothing the Kalinagos can do. He said sometimes they'd, they'd send arrows at it, lit on fire and stuff like that, but it's made out of stone. So he made his enslaved build this seven-foot cross, which still exists today. The cross was made in 1692 and still exists in Dominica today. And Genoa insisted that the cross come to be blessed by Catholic priests, which did happen some years later. And yes, Genoa lived to a ripe old age of 92. And as it says in Dr. Lennox Honeychurch's amazing book, that he lived a long and prosperous life, breaching all the agreements on the contract, made lots of money and donated his land and much of his money he made from slavery to the church. Ironically enough, I had posted about this on the Instagram platform and some people from Dominica did say that they are aware of his land and it is very much infertile. They feel like it is cursed. So I thought that was quite interesting, I guess a bit of retribution. But yeah, that was one of the examples of how in which Christianity was a means of disrespecting you know our indigenous people alongside of course of the brutal massacres and everything else they had done but also how this was how christianity became um 
a caveat for even black people to disrespect and destroy others. So moving on, I'm going to go and speak about a very interesting priest. His name was Sandoval. And this was in the 1500s. And he was one of the first uh, Catholic priests to make the grand initiative to start baptizing and indoctrinating Christianity to the enslaved people in Colombia, in Cartagena to be exact. And what he had done is that he baptized over 3,000 enslaved in seven years. And it was stated that it was better to die a slave in Cartagena than die a chieftain in the Congo. And within all of his efforts, Sandoval never degraded the slave trade, but felt it imperative to indoctrinate Christianity because they had to believe that they are saving the heathens, right? So part of one of the essays that I've been reading about, Father Sandoval says this, when the ships arrived at Cartagena, laden with their black gold from Africa, it was a task of the priests to meet the ships and provide care for the bodies and souls of the Negroes. So between 1607 and 1611, the years of Sandoval's ministry, between 12 and 14 registered ships carrying Negroes had disembarked. Most of the slaves on the ships had not been baptized, and when the priests threw holy water on the slaves, these people did not understand why the priest was throwing water on them. So there's a quote here from Sandoval. Not only were they without instruction in faith, but they also had no knowledge of baptism professed in our law. The washing of their head occurred without asking their consent or whether they wanted to be Christians. It was like baptizing them whilst they were sleeping. So Father Sandoval is one of the things that I'm looking for, I'm looking really hard for, is that he did interviews with the enslaved because he wanted to find out if Africans actually had souls. And I was really, really interested in finding out what type of questions he asked. So hopefully that can be something that will be coming up in one of the upcoming podcasts. And I would just, I'm just really, really interested in that. Well, how do you define if someone has a soul or not? Uh, but... Yeah, so that was, he started to do those, conduct those interviews in the late 15 to early 1600s in Colombia. So I think that would be quite an interesting read and also to find out the responses. Before we get into some more history, we're going to take a short musical break. And for this month's episode, I want to feature music from Nevis. One of the things I wanted to feature was the fife. The fife is a flute that you can actually find across the Caribbean. Me coming from St. Lucia, we will have it as part of our masquerade. You can also find it in Junkanoo in Jamaica. And loads of part of traditional music across the Caribbean features of five. So I'd like to enclose this lovely piece of music from Nevis. <laughs> Thank you. 
welcome back. Welcome back as we talk about Christianity and enslavement in the Caribbean and that very, very complex relationship. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So one of the things I wanted to touch on was within the early days of enslavement of Africans, when they were just trying to decide what to do and recognize this thing is making them mad money. How can they justify and validate it? So when we look at monarchs like King Louis XV of France, initially he wasn't for slavery until he was convinced that it was a means to convert the savages and save their souls. So part of the Code Noir is particularly insistent that all enslaved become baptized and all other religions be banned. So the Code Noir is what you call like the slave code, right? Across the Caribbean, there are loads of slave codes that were developed. Um, some of the first slave codes, or maybe the first proper slave code law, was in Barbados in the 1660s. Some of the first slave codes were developed in the Caribbean in the 1600s as a way to kind of just have a blanket law for across the different colonies in the Caribbean. So we had slave codes in Barbados, which was actually instrumental in developing the slave codes in Jamaica, which is also therefore went on to help develop the slave codes in the Carolinas. So there is a ripple effect coming from the Caribbean and moving up. So anyway, so within the Code Noir, I'm going to read some of the articles. And the very, very first article is this. By this, we will charge all our officers to evict from our islands all the Jews who have established their residence there. Yes, Jews were also slave owners and plantation owners, very much so, um, who have established their residence there, to whom, as to the declared enemies of the Christian name, we order to have left within three months from the day of the publication. The second part of the Code Noir says, All slaves who will be in our islands will be baptized and instructed in the Catholic and Roman religion. We charge the planters who will buy newly arrived Negroes to inform the governor and intendant of the said islands within a week at the latest or face a discretionary fine. So basically, any enslaved person you brought down to the colonies of France, if they're not baptized into the Catholic faith within a week, you'd be fined. And we give the necessary orders to have them instructed and baptized within an appropriate time. Right? Section 3. We forbid any public exercise of any religion other than Catholic, and we wish that the offenders be punished as rebels and disobedient to our orders. We prohibit all congregations for this and which we declare conventicules, whatever that means, illicit and seditious. <laughs> Subject to the same penalty which will be levied when against the masses who allow or tolerate them amongst their slaves. Then it says no overseers will be given charge of Negroes who do not profess the Catholic religion or pain of confiscation of the said Negroes from the masses who had been given this charge to them and of discretionary punishment of the overseers who accepted the said charge. Then it says 
Section 5. We forbid our subjects of the so-called reformed religion to disturb or prevent other subjects, even their slaves, from free exercise of the Catholic religion. <laughs> um, section 6. I mean, it goes on and on. Basically, it is enforcing the Catholic religion onto all, all the enslaved. And if, as a slave owner, if you did not adhere to these laws, you would uh, you'd get charged. So, you know, these are the things that you have to look at in terms of how aggressive Christianity was in the Caribbean from all sides. When you look at, you know, persons like the priest who was in Colombia, he went through all of these fast efforts to find out if, if enslaved had souls and that they'd be baptized as soon as they come out of the ship and all that kind of thing and throwing holy water on them. But, you know, he never defended. He never defended or fought for the right for the humanity of these people. He never saw an issue with slavery within itself. And within that, this we have to look at things like the Negro Bible. So when we speak about the Negro Bible, what is that? Okay, so the Negro Bible was a Bible that was developed and a copy was found that was printed in the 1800s. And it was an abridged version of the Bible that was given to the enslaved. So one of the things is like I've noted, even when going through the archives, um, when I go down to the archives, one of the things I love most, I find very insightful is when I not just looking at, say, the slave records, right, of names and ages and so on, but there are other records of documentation of punishments. And when you look at what the enslaved were punished for, a lot of the times it was for not coming to church. I remember uh, one of the slave masters called Dubole in Senusha was extremely brutal to his enslaved. And obviously he was French with the name Dubole. Um, they do have a long history, a long standing history in Senusha. But when you look at Dubole as French Catholic, that specific Dubole slave owner was particularly brutal to his enslaved. He, he would lock up women overnight. Um, they would be whipped if they did not attend church, if they were talking in church, if they came late for church. He was extremely, extremely brutal, but clearly very religious. So when you, the description of the Negro Bible goes as this. There are 1,189 chapters in the standard Protestant Bible. The Negro Bible contains only 22 so that's less than one-fifth of the actual Bible. With up to 90% of the, well, there you go. With up to 90% of the Bible omitted, leaving only verses that spoke of subservience and turning the other cheek. The Bible was craftily used to manipulate the enslaved, not only as a means to deter rebellions, but also to demonize their own African religions in order to control slave gatherings and to diminish the attitudes of empowerment, which may have come from African religion so this is very true so when you look at certain excerpts from the bible that were you know used with intention um to deter or to validate enslavement in the caribbean some of the bible verses that validate enslavement and that was used as a means to manipulate and pacify black people in the caribbean and in the u.s and in south america and central america 
and on the continent. So verses such as this, Leviticus chapter 25, verses 44 to 46. Your male and female slaves are to come from the nations around you. From them you may buy slaves and they will become your property. You can will them to your children as inherited property and you can make them slaves for life. Another very powerful verse is this. It is Peter chapter 2 verse 18. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. I mean, I'm sorry, I have a huge problem with that verse. And you know, the thing is, is that I'd like to say that I grew up in a Christian household and actually an Anglican household. And... You know, it's not that I have issues per se with Christianity. I have issues with how Christianity was used as a means to validate brutal atrocities to millions of people and to manipulate. And I think it's filled, the history of it is filled with hypocrisy. And I thought it was very necessary for us to kind of touch on that because we have a very, very strong connection or should I say relationship or history with Christianity and I felt that we needed to know a lot of these intricacies as much as it is difficult I will never judge anyone for continuing to go to church or to follow their faith but we need to know the history so one of the books that I am currently reading now is called Mastering Christianity and it's called Missionary Anglicism and Slavery in the Atlantic World by Travis Glasson and I'm very early into the book, but one of the things that he says here is in the 1700s, Bishop John Williams, whose 1706 annual sermon was an early call for the society to focus on converting and save people, noted that Syria had existed, quote, throughout all ages in the most parts of the world. And then he cited passages in Genesis, Leviticus, Timothy and Corinthians that sanctioned slavery. And noted that, quote, Christianity did not intermeddle with the legal position of the enslaved. So despite it all, they just used the Bible and picked and chose and was very choosing what they want to say kind of thing. And then during this time of this indoctrination of Christianity across um, these colonies, the church owned more enslaved people than they had staff. Can I say that again? Okay. So the church, be it Catholic, be it Anglican, be it whoever, right? Be it Jewish, whoever. All of these churches owned more enslaved people than they had priests, nuns, reverends, bishops, whatever, choir boy, you name it. They owned more enslaved people than they had people working in their own church. I'm just gonna leave you to marinate on that and we'll be back after the break. Welcome to the Relatable Podcast, a safe space for open and honest conversations created for Black people. This podcast explores how we relate to one another in our intimate connections, friendships, family, and everything in between. Hosted by three Caribbean women. I am Fiona, a single mom. I'm Shereen, 
a very near empty nester. And I'm Chantal, a free-spirited monogamist. New episodes drop every Wednesday from June 9th, and you can find us wherever you get your podcast fix. Relatable, because a shared journey brings hope. Right, folks, welcome back. I hope you had a moment to marinate on that little fact there. So going on, I know you heard me mention the word society, which I guess you guys would have gathered that it is church. To be more specific, the society or SPG is the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel, which is the beginnings of the Anglican Church. So Barbados is extremely important and instrumental in the development of the society or SPG. And this goes back to a man called Christopher Codrington, who was in Barbados in the 1600s. So he was one of the early slave owners and he had Codrington estate, which still exists today. So he was very devout, a very religious man, but also a slave owner who owned at least three to four hundred and saved um, on his plantation, which was extremely brutal. The lifespan within Barbados, um, especially during that period, was on average about four years. And I mean, if you consider that, they, sp- they said they spent three years seasoning them, so therefore getting used to and save life. And therefore, they had basically the lifespan of a year. So according to documentation about Codrington Plantation and how brutal it was on that plantation in Barbados, it was estimated that about four out of every 10 enslaved brought into that plantation in around 1740 were reported to have died within three years. So one of the things we have to take notice of that within the Caribbean, we had a very, very high death rate. And this is why some of the our dynamics are very different to that of the USA. And I think that's a podcast episode that I will touch on in terms of our differences between the USA and the Caribbean in terms of enslavement and the developments of our society. So look out for that one. But within that, there was a constant uh, importation of enslaved people. And Barbados was huge with that because for one it was the principal stop off point like a lot of the ships used to stop off in Barbados and then you know then send off smaller ships to you know the other islands but in Barbados the conditions were absolutely brutal and Codrington estate was one of the worst so if 40% of the enslaved on that plantation had an average lifespan of three years. Let's add to that the concept of branding. So the those who were the enslaved on that estate were branded with the society across their chest, which is the church. So therefore the church branded their enslaved with their name on their chest. And that was as a means, as a deterrent for runaways. So if you want to run away, everybody knew who you belong to. You belong to the church. One of the things that we have to consider when it comes to the brutality on the plantations is before the end of the slave trade, which was in 1807, many slave owners just thought it was cheaper to just work you to death and then you just buy someone new. And it was only at the end of the slave trade in 1807, obviously the end of slavery ended in 1838 within the British colonies and much later in the French and even much later in the Dutch, Portuguese and Spanish colonies. It was before that time, they just say, if you die, I'll just buy somebody else, right? 
So in terms of the high death rate, the Caribbean didn't have that. So we had a massive influx of new Africans coming constantly. So this, that's why one of the reasons we have high African cultural retention in the Caribbean because we had this constant influx of, as they call them, saltwater Africans. But within that, we also experienced huge brutality and enforcement of um, Christianity. So one of the things is that's quite interesting in Barbados for a long time, they did not want to baptize the enslaved. And we're going to go back to our brethren, not brethren. I say bon him, but he's very insightful. Pelabat. Um, you may remember him from our last ep- episode when we were talking about the Kalinagos and his insights there. So he did go to Barbados. The English do not look after their slaves well and feed them very badly. As a rule, the slaves are free to work on Saturday to provide themselves with all their own and their family's requirements. The overseers get every ounce of work from them, beat them without mercy for the least fault, and appear to care less for the life of a Negro than a horse. So this coincides with, it's just it's best I just work you to death, right? It is true that they obtain their slaves very cheaply, and for beside the English companies in Africa that bring over an enormous quantity of slaves to America, the interlopers still bring more slaves and sell them cheaper than the companies. The clergymen do not instruct the slaves or baptize them, and the Negroes are regarded more like beasts to whom all license is permitted as long as they do their work properly. So, you know, I thought that was quite interesting what he's saying about the, the refusal to baptize. And for Barbados in particular, this is true. Um, looking at some of the records, Anglicans weren't really on the whole baptizing their slaves kind of thing. They were not on it. And in the early records in Barbados, it was actually the Quakers randomly were the only ones kind of welcoming black people to become part of their church or for them to be baptized and for them to do sermons with them and all that kind of thing. But back to Codrington Estate. So Codrington Estate... Christopher Codrington is very religious. He's like, yo, I want to do this thing. And when he passed away, he bequeathed his plantation as Sir Hilary Beckles. Amazing, amazing, amazing. One of the most amazing Caribbean historians ever from Barbados described Christopher Codrington's or some of these estates as death houses. When Codrington died in 17... When Codrington died in 1710... He bequeathed his properties to the church, to the society. And this is how in which the society was able to continue and make money and so on and brand it and stay with a big, huge society across the chest and so on. And within his will, he was insistent on that the society take certain measures to continue to spread under faith within Barbados and as much as it can across the colonies, right? So the Codrington estate still exists today. And part of that is the Coddington College, which is a seminary. Within that, the money that Christopher Coddington had um, gained through his very brutal enslavement of Africans is that he was able to donate a few thousand pounds in their money back in them days, right, to Oxford College and the, the construction of what is called the Coddington Library. Uh, he donated 6,000 pounds worth of books and 10,000 pounds of money 
And when you calculate it, it is over a million pounds in today's money. So big money thing around. So also within that, when, um, let's fast forward some couple of hundred years, and Christopher Coddington's estate, which now belongs to the church, and there's emancipation, and for most of us know, those who may not, that when they had emancipation of slavery, the British government gave compensation to all slave owners for their loss of property. Okay, so we're like, yo, can't do slavery anymore, you know, but we're going to pay you some money, okay, right? And of course, the enslaved got jack shit. But the church, the SPG, right, the society got just over £8,000. Um, when you calculate it, that is a million pounds in today's money. So therefore, this is one of the examples of how the church has built its foundations or was able to profit off of enslavement. And going back to places like Dominica and the Jesuits, the Jesuits were doing their thing. They were there for a while. What happened is, is that they had developed so much debt. So one of the reasons why they came across to Dominica from Martinique is because they were in a lot of debt. And they're like, yo, money have to make so let we expand our empire. Let's go Dominica. Nothing is running there. It's just across the water. Let we do our thing. We own slaves. Let's go. And what happened is that they ended up being kicked out because they ended up being so much debt. And the British took over in Dominica. So that was the end of that story of the Jesuits in Dominica and their expansive slave trade and their plantations. So guys, before I close up the episode, I'm going to leave you with one last story, which is quite a familiar story to many, especially to my Jamaican people out there. And it's the story of Sam Sharp. And this is an example of where Christianity backfires on Europeans and their efforts for pacification. And Sam Sharp was about 27 when he led one of the largest slave rebellions in history in Jamaica. And he was one of the catalysts to the road to abolition. Sam Sharp, 27 years old, is a Baptist minister. He's doing his thing and he's like, yo, we need to do something, right? We need to rally up the people, but let's do it peacefully. And what happened is that Sam Sharp was described as a literate Baptist minister who captured the love of his people through his empowering sermons. He managed to plan the protests at church meetings which was the only type of group gatherings allowed for black people on the island. So these are things that we need to take into consideration that we were only allowed to gather under the guise of Christian faith. So there was no other means of respite. There's no other means of social activity. It was only under Christianity. So if you look at from as soon as you come off the ship or it is in the laws, or that, you know, um, you are punished, you are jailed, you are whipped, you are branded, and all of these kind of things like that, you have to look at all the different ways and where in which they used to enforce Christianity into the Caribbean society. So, back to Samshad, this was the only type of uh, social gatherings that were allowed amongst black people in Jamaica at the time. So he was very much insistent on the peaceful protests and insisting only the use of force was acceptable in defense from any oncoming attacks. But despite his hopes for peaceful demands, plantations and properties were set on fire as tensions rose and 14 white people were killed. Now, 
let's have a think back about this this is in the 1830s in jamaica and sam sharp through the church actually used the church as a means to develop a strategy to demand freedom and better treatment of his people so it's quite funny how despite the efforts of pacification despite the efforts of the negro bible with like only 10 percent of the bible available to you and all of the brutality is that we still use it as a means for our liberation and freedom and when you look at sam sharp and what he had done jamaica at the time had 300,000 people and he rallied 60,000 people so that is one fifth of the population with no phones no letters no internet it was banned for enslaved to be able to read and write. So it was something, not to say you could just send a letter and plan the thing. So the fact that it spread like wildfire in this way and the fact that Christianity was uh, the caveat for that, I think that's an amazing story because within all of everything that they've done, all of everything, once again, Christianity, it backfired on them, backfired. And even Sam Sharp, who was just 27 years old, you know, the rebellion in today's money cost the British government 52 million pounds. Okay? So you can almost double that to get the US price. But 52 million. Sam Sharp, Baptist minister, man of the faith, man of the Bible, 27 years old, and managed to create this disruption and destruction and that's through church meetings uh, so with that the British were shook and they did have to gather help from the Maroons which is something that is going to be an upcoming episode as well our complex history with the Maroons and their relationship with Britain but you know the British had to get the help of the Maroons to stop the rebellion and within that 200 freedom fighters were killed and Sam Sharp was also executed. Just before his execution, Sam Sharp was quoted to have said, I would rather die upon yonder gallows than live my life in slavery. So it just goes to show no matter how much they try to manipulate, no matter how much they try to, you know, do whatever they're doing, there are people, our people, saw the value in ourselves and our need for our freedom, our liberation, alongside being Christian. So, folks, thank you so much for listening to this month's episode. I know it's complicated, it's long, and there's loads of gaps and loads more to talk about. But I hope that this helped to give you guys a bit of an insight to just how complex our relationship with Christianity is. And not just the abject brutality that they use, but also the manipulation and Jedi mind tricks that was used to ensure and enforce that Christianity kept a stronghold in the Caribbean and it worked. Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary Freaknik The Wildest Party Never Told about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.